Section 10 of Chapter 19 of A History of England. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. History of England by Thomas Babington Macaulay. Chapter 19, Section 10. He was not naturally a man of fine feelings, and the life which he had led had not tended to make them finer. He had been, during many years, a mark for theological and political animosity. Grave doctors had anathematized him, ribald poets had lampooned him, princes and ministers had laid snares for his life. He had been long a wanderer and an exile, in constant peril of being kidnapped, struck in the boots, hanged and quartered. Yet none of these things had ever seemed to move him. His self-conceit had been proof against ridicule, and his dauntless temper against danger. But on this occasion his fortitude seems to have failed him. To be stigmatized by the popular branch of the legislature as a teacher of doctrines so servile that they disgusted even Tories, to be joined in one sentence of condemnation with the editor of Filmer, was too much. How deeply Burnet was wounded appeared many years later, when, after his death, his history of his life and times was given to the world. In that work he is ordinarily garrulous, even to minuteness, about all that concerns himself, and sometimes relates with amusing ingenuousness his own mistakes and the censures which those mistakes brought upon him. But about the ignominious judgment passed by the House of Commons on his pastoral letter, he has preserved a most significant silence. The plot which ruined Bohun, though it did no honour to those who contrived it, produced important and salutary effects. Before the conduct of the unlucky licenser had been brought under the consideration of Parliament, the Commons had resolved, without any division, and, as far as appears, without any discussion, that the act which subjected literature to a censorship should be continued. But the question had now assumed a new aspect and the continuation of the act was no longer regarded as a matter of course. A feeling in favour of the liberty of the press, a feeling not yet, it is true, of wide extent or formidable intensity, began to show itself. The existing system, it was said, was prejudicial both to commerce and to learning. Could it be expected that any capitalist would advance the funds necessary for a great literary undertaking, or that any scholar would expend years of toil and research on such an undertaking, while it was possible that, at the last moment, the caprice, the malice, the folly of one man might frustrate the whole design? And was it certain that the law which so grievously restricted both the freedom of trade and the freedom of thought had really added to the security of the state? Had not recent experience proved that the licenser might himself be an enemy of their majesties, or were still an absurd and perverse friend, that he might suppress a book of which it would be for their interest that every house in the country should have a copy, and that he might readily give his sanction to a libel which tended to make them hateful to their people, and which deserved to be torn and burned by the hand of Ketch? Had the government gained much by establishing a literary police, which prevented Englishmen from having the history of the bloody circuit, and allowed them, by way of compensation, to read tracts which represented King William and Queen Mary as conquerors? In that age persons who were not specially interested in a public bill very seldom petitioned Parliament against it or for it. 
The only petitions, therefore, which were at this conjuncture presented to the two houses against the censorship came from booksellers, bookbinders, and printers. But the opinion which these classes expressed was certainly not confined to them. The law which was about to expire had lasted eight years. It was renewed for only two years. It appears from an entry in the journals of the Commons, which unfortunately is defective, that a division took place on an amendment about the nature of which we are left entirely in the dark. The votes were ninety-nine to eighty. In the Lords it was proposed, according to the suggestion offered fifty years before by Milton and stolen from him by Blunt, to exempt from the authority of the licenser every book which bore the name of an author or publisher. This amendment was rejected and the bill passed, but not without a protest signed by eleven peers, who declared that they could not think it for the public interest to subject all learning and true information to the arbitrary will and pleasure of a mercenary, and perhaps ignorant licenser. Among those who protested were Halifax, Shrewsbury, and Mulgrave, three noblemen belonging to different political parties, but all distinguished by their literary attainments. It is to be lamented that the signatures of Tillotson and Burnet who were both present on that day, should be wanting. Dorset was absent. Blunt, by whose exertions and machinations the opposition to the censorship had been raised, did not live to see that opposition successful. Though not a very young man, he was possessed by an insane passion for the sister of his deceased wife, having long laboured in vain to convince the object of his love that she might lawfully marry him he at last whether from weariness of life or in the hope of touching her heart inflicted on himself a wound of which after languishing long he died he has often been mentioned as a blasphemer and self-murderer but the important service which by means doubtless most immoral and dishonourable he rendered to his country has passed almost unnoticed Late in this busy and eventful session, the attention of the Houses was called to the state of Ireland. The government of that kingdom had, during the six months which followed the surrender of Limerick, been in an unsettled state. It was not till the Irish troops who adhered to Sarsfield had sailed for France, and till the Irish troops who had made their election to remain at home had been disbanded, that William at length put forth a proclamation solemnly announcing the termination of the civil war. From the hostility of the aboriginal inhabitants, destitute as they now were of chiefs, of arms, and of organization, nothing was to be apprehended beyond occasional robberies and murders. But the war-cry of the Irishry had scarcely died away when the first faint murmurs of the Englishry began to be heard. Coningsby was during some months at the head of the administration. He soon made himself in the highest degree odious to the dominant caste. He was an unprincipled man he was insatiable of riches, and he was in a situation in which riches were easily to be obtained by an unprincipled man. Immense sums of money, immense quantities of military stores, had been sent over from England. Immense confiscations were taking place in Ireland. The rapacious governor had daily opportunities of embezzling and extorting, and of those opportunities he availed himself without scruple or shame. This, however, was not, in the estimation of the colonists, his greatest offence. They might have pardoned his covetousness, but they could not pardon the clemency which he showed to their vanquished and enslaved enemies. His clemency indeed amounted merely to this, that he loved money more than he hated papists, and that he was not unwilling to sell for a high price a scanty measure of justice to some of the oppressed class. 
unhappily to the ruling minority sore from recent conflict and drunk with recent victory the subjugated majority was as a drove of cattle or rather as a pack of wolves man acknowledges in the inferior animals no rights inconsistent with his own convenience and as man deals with the inferior animals the cromwellian thought himself at liberty to deal with the roman catholic coningsby therefore drew on himself a greater storm of obloquy by his few good acts than by his many bad acts the clamour against him was so violent that he was removed and sidney went over with the full power and dignity of lord lieutenant to hold a parliament at dublin but the easy temper and graceful manners of sidney failed to produce a conciliatory effect he does not indeed appear to have been greedy of unlawful gain but he did not restrain with a sufficiently firm hand the crowd of subordinate functionaries whom coningsby's example and protection had encouraged to plunder the public and to sell their good offices to suitors nor was the new viceroy of a temper to bear hard on the feeble remains of the native aristocracy he therefore speedily became an object of suspicion and aversion to the anglo-saxon settlers his first act was to send out the writs for a general election the roman catholics had been excluded from every municipal corporation but no law had yet deprived them of the country franchise it is probable however that not a single roman catholic freeholder ventured to approach the hustings the members chosen were with few exceptions men animated by the spirit of enniskillen and londonderry a spirit eminently heroic in times of distress and peril but too often cruel and imperious in the season of prosperity and power they detested the civil treaty of limerick and were indignant when they learned that the lord lieutenant fully expected from them a parliamentary ratification of that odious contract a contract which gave a license to the idolatry of the mass and which prevented good protestants from ruining their popish neighbours by bringing civil actions for injuries done during the war on the fifth of october sixteen ninety two the parliament met at dublin in chichester house it was very differently composed from the assembly which had borne the same title in sixteen eighty nine scarcely one peer not one member of the house of commons who had sate at the king's inns was to be seen to the crowd of o's and macs descendants of the old princes of the island had succeeded men whose names indicated a saxon origin a single o an apostate from the faith of his fathers and three macs evidently emigrants from scotland and probably presbyterians had seats in the assembly the parliament thus composed had then less than the powers of the assembly of jamaica or of the assembly of virginia not merely was the legislature which sate at dublin subject to the absolute control of the legislature which sate at westminster but a law passed in the fifteenth century during the administration of the lord deputy poynings and called by his name had provided that no bill which had not been considered and approved by the privy council of england should be brought into either house in ireland that every bill so considered and approved should be either passed without amendment or rejected the session opened with a solemn recognition of the paramount authority of the mother country the commons ordered their clerk to read to them the english act which required them to take the oath of supremacy and to subscribe the declaration against transubstantiation having heard the act read they immediately proceeded to obey it addresses were then voted which expressed the warmest gratitude and attachment to the king two members who had been untrue to the protestant and english interests during the troubles were expelled supplies liberal when compared with the resources of a country devastated by years of predatory war were voted with eagerness 
but the bill for confirming the act of settlement was thought to be too favorable to the native gentry, and, as it could not be amended, was with little ceremony rejected. A committee of the whole house resolved that the unjustifiable indulgence with which the Irish had been treated since the Battle of the Boyne was one of the chief causes of the misery of the kingdom. A committee of grievances sat daily till eleven in the evening, and the proceedings of this inquest greatly alarmed the castle. Many instances of gross venality and knavery on the part of men high in office were brought to light, and many instances also of what was then thought a criminal lenity toward the subject nation. This papist had been allowed to enlist in the army, that papist had been allowed to keep a gun, a third had too good a horse, a fourth had been protected against Protestants who wished to bring actions against him for wrongs committed during the years of confusion. The Lord Lieutenant, having obtained nearly as much money as he could expect, determined to put an end to these unpleasant inquiries. He knew, however, that if he quarrelled with the Parliament for treating either peculators or papists with severity, he should have little support in England. He therefore looked out for a pretext, and was fortunate enough to find one. The Commons had passed a vote which might with some plausibility be represented as inconsistent with the Poining statute. Anything which looked like a violation of that great fundamental law was likely to excite strong disapprobation on the other side of St. George's Channel. The Viceroy saw his advantage, and availed himself of it. He went to the chamber of the Lords at Chichester House, sent for the Commons, reprimanded them in strong language, charged them with undutifully and ungratefully encroaching on the rights of the mother country, and put an end to the session. Those whom he had lectured withdrew full of resentment. The imputation which he had thrown on them was unjust. They had a strong feeling of love and reverence for the land from which they sprang, and looked with confidence for a redress to the supreme Parliament. Several of them went to London for the purpose of vindicating themselves and of accusing the Lord Lieutenant. They were favoured with a long and attentive audience, both by the Lords and by the Commons, and were requested to put the substance of what had been said into writing. The humble language of the petitioners, and their protestations that they had never intended to violate the Poining statute, or to dispute the paramount authority of England, effaced the impression which Sidney's accusations had made. Both houses addressed the king on the state of Ireland. They censured no delinquent by name, but they expressed an opinion that there had been gross maladministration, that the public had been plundered, and that Roman Catholics had been treated with unjustifiable tenderness. William, in reply, promised that what was amiss should be corrected. His friend Sidney was soon recalled, and consoled for the loss of the viceregal dignity with the lucrative place of Master of the Ordnance. The government of Ireland was for a time entrusted to Lord's Justices, among whom Sir Henry Capel, a zealous Whig, very little disposed to show indulgence to Papists, had the foremost place. The prorogation drew nigh and still the fate of the triennial bill was uncertain. Some of the ablest ministers thought the bill a good one, and, even had they thought it a bad one, they would probably have tried to dissuade their master from rejecting it. It was impossible, however, to remove from his mind the impression that a concession on this point would seriously impair his authority. Not relying on the judgment of his ordinary advisers, he sent Portland to ask the opinion of Sir William Temple. Temple had made a retreat for himself at a place called Moor Park, in the neighbourhood of Farnham. The country round his dwelling was almost a wilderness. His amusement during some years had been to create in the waste what those Dutch burgomasters among whom he had passed some of the best years of his life, 
would have considered as a paradise. His hermitage had been occasionally honoured by the presence of the king, who had from a boy known and esteemed the author of the Triple Alliance, and who was well pleased to find, among the heath and firs of the wilds of Surrey, a spot which seemed to be part of Holland, a straight canal, a terrace, rows of clipped trees, and rectangular beds of flowers and pot-herbs. Portland now repaired to this secluded abode, and consulted the oracle. Temple was decidedly of opinion that the bill ought to pass. He was apprehensive that the reasons which led him to form this opinion might not be fully and correctly reported to the king by Portland, who was indeed as brave a soldier and as trusty a friend as ever lived, whose natural abilities were not inconsiderable, and who, in some departments of business, had great experience, but who was very imperfectly acquainted with the history and constitution of England. As the state of Sir William's health made it impossible for him to go himself to Kensington, he determined to send his secretary thither. The secretary was a poor scholar of four or five and twenty, under whose plain garb and ungainly deportment were concealed some of the choicest gifts that have ever been bestowed on any of the children of men, rare powers of observation, brilliant wit, grotesque invention humour of the most austere flavour, yet exquisitely delicious, eloquence singularly pure, manly and perspicuous. This young man was named Jonathan Swift. He was born in Ireland, but would have thought himself insulted if he had been called an Irishman. He was of unmixed English blood, and through life regarded the aboriginal population of the island in which he first drew breath as an alien and a servile caste. He had, in the late reign, kept terms at the University of Dublin, but had been distinguished there only by his irregularities, and had with difficulty obtained his degree. At the time of the Revolution he had, with many thousands of his fellow colonists, taken refuge in the mother country from the violence of Tyrconnell, and had thought himself fortunate in being able to obtain shelter at Moor Park. For that shelter, however, he had to pay a heavy price. He was thought to be sufficiently remunerated for his services with twenty pounds a year and his board. He dined at the second table. Sometimes, indeed, when better company was not to be had, he was honoured by being invited to play at cards with his patron. And on such occasions Sir William was so generous as to give his antagonist a little silver to begin with. The humble student would not have dared to raise his eyes to a lady of family. But when he had become a clergyman, he began, after the fashion of the clergyman of that generation, to make love to a pretty waiting-maid who was the chief ornament of the servants' hall, and whose name is inseparably associated with his in a sad and mysterious history. End of section 10